Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. And we know that BC is gearing up for the possibility of electoral reform, but are we taking the first steps needed to make this a fair and transparent process? With us to discuss a new report from the Fraser Institute on best practices for a referendum, it's Lydia Millian. She is an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor. She's also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Lydia, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. So I'm going back uh, a few years now to when BC uh, played around with some electoral reform. We had some previous uh, referenda with regards to the single transferable vote in the uh, 2000s. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if we went around that the right way with regards to the referenda that we had there, if you have any suggestions about what we should do going forward with their upcoming electoral reform efforts that we have going on in BC now. Right. So the first time around, um, it almost passed, uh, except it didn't make the threshold for the supermajority. And that was a general question on should we um, switch to the the BC STV as recommended by the um, Electoral Commission. And for what it's worth, the question was was fine. It it it, it asked for an affirmative. It didn't have a bias in favor of the status quo. There's some debate regarding the the six you know the supermajority threshold. Um, you know, some people argue, and I think what the Premier thought was that you know electoral reform is pretty important, and so you better make sure that you've got full buy-in for legitimacy, so the 60% overall was required. But I think more important, he had the regional requirement that you had to at least have uh, 50% and uh, uh, sorry, 60% and 50% of the ridings as well, so that you had regional buy-in. Um, and some people argue that that doing that. Uh, in, in some instances, can reduce voter turnout, but that isn't what happened in BC. Voter turnout uh, was fine because it was in conjunction with the, a provincial election campaign, so it really wasn't an issue that way. Now, this time around, we're doing just 50% straight across the board and no regional requirement, and I think that uh, should give some pause to the government with respect to whether or not they have legitimacy of an outcome if, if you know, just the way populations are centered in the lower mainland, you can have activists in lower mainland deciding the vote uh, and completely ignoring um, the opinions of people in the outlying regions. So that's definitely something that I think a lot of people are paying attention to. Like you said, the legitimacy aspect of this, but how are we faring from just the early steps of this? That's one thing that you're pointing out, but uh, is BC on the right track so far? There are some steps that we should be taking. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is, we don't know what the question is going to be. And that's yeah. what this paper really looks at. It's like, what are the best practices for questions? And, and you know, both around the world and even from our own experiences in Canada, there are some expectations that you have uh, a simple yes-no question, you know, or um, I've actually, I, like, I prefer the questions where it's, it's, it's an affirmative in either direction. So should we change to this specific vote uh, or should we keep what we have? So both would be an affirmative decision uh, that way you reduce some status quo bias. Um, but the most important thing for me is that the, 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 the public understand the consequences of their vote. And here's where it gets tricky for BC is that we just have this really general, at least so far what the government said is they just want a general question on should we switch to proportional representation. And I think that's somewhat wrongheaded because there's so many different types of proportional representation that people won't have any idea what they're voting in favor of. So it kind of gives a carte blanche to the government. And what we know from other 
referenda and for research on this is that the public is is very reluctant to give uh, that kind of power to to governments. They're more likely, in fact, to vote no when it's a vague question than if it's a specific question. So what I recommend is that you take a look at what they did in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they they had uh, a different context, but they certainly had public desire for change. And they asked uh, they asked an initial referendum question: Is would you like to switch? move away from first past the post. And even in within that referendum, they had a second question, which was, if you'd like to switch, which system would you like to switch towards? So in the first part, they had a huge, uh, huge number of people who said, yes, we want to switch. And then the public said, the, the uh, I think 75% said they wanted to switch to mixed member proportional. And then with that knowledge, the government then set up a special electoral committee of parliamentarians and they designed an electoral system that worked for New Zealand. They looked at everything from riding boundaries to what would happen in minority or coalition governments. And then they presented that to the public for a second referendum. And in that referendum, they said, would you like to keep the first past the post as we have in our current legislation? Or would you like to go to this mixed member portional um, in this new legislation. So it was very specific what they were going to vote in favor of. And then in that second case, the the support wasn't as large as the first time, but it still passed, I think, with 55%. And then that's why they changed. So I think that's the best way to get full legitimacy, a uh, fair question, and also to allow people to know the consequences of their vote. Well, I'm also curious because uh, were they timing those referenda there with regards to, say, general elections across New Zealand? Because as you said, we're going to have our own in a very kind of weird time. It's not going to be during a provincial election, so voter turnout may not be as big. Did they kind of uh, fix that potential issue in New Zealand when they held their referenda? Yeah, as far as I remember, it was it was in conjunction with a general election, and, and that's how you get higher voter turnout. And that certainly was the case in the last, in the previous BC referenda, they were in conjunction with uh, provincial campaigns. So, you know, voter turnout was, was quite high. And I would suggest that if they don't have voter turnout as high as they would normally in a provincial election, then they should also proceed with caution because they simply don't have legitimacy. So let me give you another example. Yeah. Prince Edward Island went through a similar process. Um, they, I think in 2016, had a referendum on which system people would like. And, and Prince Edward Island is a province that boasts the highest voter turnouts anywhere in the country um, for the provincial campaigns. And in this referendum, they actually actually had online voting and they allowed 16 and 17 year olds to vote as well and they only had 35 percent turnout and this is from a province that boasts you know 75 to 80 percent turnout and as a result the government went whoa we we can't proceed because we don't we don't have endorsement of the public the public were simply not engaged in this question um, and so they couldn't go forward you know if you look at the last referendum um, that BC had on the HST, it was the same system that they're planning for this one, um, this, this um, online mail-in ballot, but not in conjunction with a provincial campaign. And in that instance, I think the turnout was around 45%. So that's something that they really need to take a close look at and be concerned about. I, I can tell you there's still a lot of people uh, reeling from the HST uh, vote that we had uh, a few years back. And, and I, I do wonder, though, just with regards to the STV questions that we had in BC uh, years ago, if you look at those questions, did they kind of influence the way that maybe people voted? And is, is is there something that we can learn from that, just in the way that these questions are framed moving forward? 
Yeah, no, you know, actually when I looked at it, the, the question itself wasn't particularly different than the first time. So the first time around you, you had a, you had like 58% in favor of change. The second time around it was, it was under 50%. I think what happened in the interim was that people got more information about the new system. So in the first, the first instance, it was just this general idea of, of STV and people were like, oh, it sounds, you know, as recommended by the, um, uh, the electoral commission, which I think is a leading statement, whenever you say is as recommended by that kind of that kind of pushes a vote uh, in one direction. But the second time around, what was different is that they actually laid out what that would mean for BC, and and a real I think a deal breaker for a lot of people was that it changed the boundaries. You went from 85 at that, that time was 85 seats was going to be moved down to 20 seats, uh, and that different ridings would have different numbers of representatives. You know, in some cases there would be as few as two, and others as you know as many as seven. And I think that's where people were like, oh, no, that isn't what we want at all. So having the specifics allowed people to understand the consequence of their vote. So I think in the second referendum, it was more clear what people are voting for or against as opposed to the first time. I wouldn't mind throwing a hypothetical at you because we're going to have a, a vote uh, potentially November of 2018, I believe, later on this year. So that would be vote number one uh, that you would be talking about here. Mm -hmm. And then would it be best then if, let's say, we go to a second vote that that is aligned with, say, the next provincial election a few years after that? Yeah, I think that would be a great scenario. I think that in this first in this first vote, it should be more like a plebiscite. It should be um, so that it gives some indication of of desire for change. And, and I think it should still be a two part question. So, you know, would you like to switch uh, from first past the post to something else? Yes or no? Straight off. And then the second question would only kick in. You'd only t you'd only worry about it if the first one had um, whatever threshold you set. Uh, and then you have a list of the different electoral systems. I mean, the, the government's saying they want proportional representation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the public wants proportional representation. They might want a single transferable vote. They want, might want a mixed system. So list the different systems and find out if there is a consensus on which system to change to. And then of those that get more than 50%, then get, get you know, the, the government to design a system that fits that looking at electoral boundaries, looking at rules of voting. I mean, I have another paper coming out in, in, a, in, in a month or so looking at how no system is exactly the same. Different countries use different formula for calculating the votes, different lists and things like that. I think, the, I think British Columbians need to know what those details are before they uh, provide their consent. And so that's what that second referendum would be is that, okay, do you want to maintain first past the post as we have in our current legislation, or would you like to switch to the system as designed by the BC government um, that looks like this? And that, I think, it gives you best legitimacy. I don't know if I'm just making some spurious connections here when I look at the BC voting population. But if you go back and look at previous plebiscites and, and referenda, we see that British Columbians, whether it's STV or the uh, transportation uh, plebiscite that we had a few years ago, you mentioned HST as well. We, we like to say no to a lot of these things. And, and I wonder how much of it do you think it's just kind of BC as a whole, the, the way that these uh, processes are designed from the outsets, or if there's just something else going on here where it just does, British Columbians mean just legitimately not want to go forward with these changes? 
Well, it, you know, I think a lot depends on what the changes are. Um, a part of it's the campaigning. I mean, there's there's a lot of literature on a lot of things have been written about why BC voted no uh, the last two times for electoral reform. I don't know the details about the HST or or, or the transit one, but I know for for a pretty good idea for the electoral reform is that people didn't like the change that was being offered. Mm -hmm. Either they didn't like the complexity of it, uh, they weren't sure about the transparency of it, they were concerned about um, whether or not they'd have uh, regional representation to the same extent that they have now. The big difference, I think, between what we saw in change in New Zealand versus even in any jurisdiction in Canada is that in the, in the New Zealand case, the public desired the change. It wasn't something that was promised because a party was out of office, although the parties did that, the public actually were fed up with the party system in that country. They really felt it was like this closed insider groups and it was just switching between national and labor and they thought fundamental change had to happen. In BC, I don't see that happening. You know, there's nothing out there that says outside of a few activists uh, and party insiders that the public is wholeheartedly um, doesn't like the electoral system the way it works in BC. For the most part, BC does make sense for, in my mind for first past the post simply because you have you have pretty much a two party system um, and and the you already built in coalitions within those parties if you switch your system you're going to switch your party your party as well uh, and people might not be willing to to sacrifice having say majority governments or having to have um, certain outcomes and so I don't see a huge groundswelling of desire for change, and I think that's one of the big reasons why these electoral reform um, referenda and plebiscite fail in Canada is that really outside of those activists, you don't have um, a huge desire for change. Well, Lydia, as this goes on, I, I would love to get you back on the show because we're going to get closer and closer to these changes coming up from British Columbia. But for now, I, I'd like to thank you for joining us on today's program. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to talk to you again. That's Lydia Million. She is an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor, and she's also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. And you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton, and that's it for our show today. We'll be back next time. Thank you for listening. Very fascinating insights. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600. Or else check them out on their website at manningelliot.ca. We're going to continue our conversation with Chris Sands right now. But for now, I want to encourage everybody to leave us a positive review. Give us some ratings on iTunes. That helps even more people find us in the online world. And uh, for now, you can find my stories at BIV.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Reporting. And this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Counts and Business Advisors. Until next time, this has been the Van Business in Vancouver podcast.